0: Amen. Uh, tonight is September 3rd, 2008. and It's a Wednesday night. Our message this evening will be called Distress Call. And uh, turn to Genesis 28. Tell me when you're in Genesis 28. And tonight I might need a little help from you. So, there you go, girl. Mandy's got a Bible. Where are the rest of you? Look, they're running to their cars to get Bibles and that would be great if we had a church of two. Where are the rest of you? Genesis 20, okay. I'm just hard of hearing. Oh, a bit in there. I like that better. In Genesis 28, starting in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haram. Now, that in itself is an amazing statement. I can understand if it means very little to you. Like Beersheba, wow, is that where the first Budweiser plant was? What's the deal? Haran. I, is it anywhere near Iran? I mean, to us, this doesn't make a great deal of sense. If you lived anywhere near this area, though, what we've just done... Have you ever heard the phrase from Dan to Beersheba in the Bible? That was the most northern point in Israel to the most southern point. Beersheba is all the way at the bottom of Israel, 180 miles from Dan in the north. Well, it doesn't say from Dan to Beersheba. It says he sets out from Beersheba towards Haran. took me a while to find Haran. That was not a word I was very familiar with. Haran is all the way up in Assyria. It is a long, long, long ways away. It, in fact, it's it's twice the length of Israel away, just about. Imagine now, we're living in some 2000 B.C., taking a trek across what today would comprise three countries. That's an amazing trip, isn't it? And this just spits it out as no big deal. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Can you imagine what you would be facing on such a long journey? How do you carry enough supplies to cross three countries? What do you do? Now, in what condition has Jacob set out for this? He's fleeing from his... about that? This is a desperate situation. It says, when he reached a certain place, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. That's as good a reason as any, isn't it? The sun set. You don't want to travel at night. But he reached a certain place. In your reading and your understanding of the Scriptures, does anything ever happen by accident? No. This place that He stops, when you look at a satellite image above it, the Israelis will tell you in Hebrew that the mountain ranges are arranged in such a way that the impressions that it leaves, the shadow that it leaves on the earth, says Yahweh is My name. Right here in this impression on the earth, I actually have a picture of it, it's just not up in here. It's a place that would later be called Bethel. It means house. Isn't it interesting? That, in the place that he happens to stop to live, more significant biblical sites in all of history, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran by the way, at this point in the journey where it says a certain place, he hadn't even made it one third of the way to where he's going. How many times you set out thinking your destination was one thing, and God had something entirely different in mind for you, yeah. He screamed and said, you can run to the end of the highway. He sang a whole song about it and you still won't find yourself. Mm. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he uh, reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. My wife and I fight over pillows very often, but neither one of us have a stone for a pillow. Would you say this is roughing it just a little bit? He had a dream in which he saw a stairway. You thought Led Zeppelin made this up, didn't you? Mm -hmm. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it, or it might say beside it according to your footnote, stood the Lord and He said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. (laughs) If you start in any one place on the globe, let's say you started in Sugar Land, and you spread out to the west, you might get all the way to San Antonio, and then you might get all the way to California. And if you spread out to the east, you might get all the way to Louisiana. You'd skip that and go to another place, like Alabama. Or you'd keep going, but in any direction that you spread out, if you spread out in all four directions, that's pretty well covering it all, isn't it? The revelation eventually comes to Abraham, this man's forefather. Uh, It's written about in the book of Romans that he would inherit the whole world. So, well, how does he get something like that? Because God told him not only everywhere he set his foot, but in every direction the land would belong to them. This is also how Jesus can say something like, the meek will inherit the earth. There is a kind of people, and God starts with this person in a certain people group in a certain nation. But from them we are raising up a prince with God that is a kind of people that will rule the entire creation. I want you to get something though. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, "How awesome is this place! There is none other that this is none other than the house of God in the gate of heaven. Before I push on much further, I want you to understand something. You may not be on a journey that starts in Beersheba. Beersheba means the house of the oath by the way, or the seven oaths. This commemorates a place where Abraham, this man's forefather, made an oath and and planted trees and commemorated it before God, he's he's leaving a place in life that is resting on his father's experiences with God. And he is setting out in his own journey towards the most distant place he possibly could. Now, that, that couldn't relate to any of you, could it? Having to leave behind some foundational experience that someone else had and go seek your own before God. And during this journey, he finds himself a certain place. This certain place is that divine intersection where you and God meet and have a what we now call a come to Jesus meeting. And in this place he doesn't have anything. He's distressed because he's leaving in haste from where he's at. He has to go all of this way to the place that he's no real help, no real support, lots of responsibilities, has no place even to lay his head except on any place like that in your life where you thought God had forsaken you? Or at the very least, you simply just didn't feel His presence there? Maybe you didn't think He forsook you. You just simply weren't very aware of Him. I find a place like that in almost every day, honestly. I mean, that's, that's the truth. At some point during most days, I realize, I'm sorry, Lord. I just hadn't been thinking about You today. Forgive me. Let's talk. (laughs) and I begin to talk and pray, my knee gets better immediately. God wanted to show Jacob something. He wanted to show this man who had strived, striven, whatever that word is. Mom's a teacher. Yeah, nobody knows. Can anybody really tell? He wanted to show Jacob who had struggled all of his life for something that is God's. He wanted to show him of that struggle even when you're not aware of it. And you know what? Jacob gets the message. Can you relate to a time in your life when you didn't see God's hand at work in your life and He was right there working the entire time? He gets the message to the point where he says, you know what? This is the very house of God and the gate of heaven. Well, what is the gate of heaven? What is the house of God? That His presence was in the midst of the struggle and He wasn't even aware of it. We'll keep reading for a minute and then we'll see if we can bring that home in about 24 minutes. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Keep your finger there before we read Jacob's vow. I want you to understand there was nothing especially striking about this stone. Do you know how you know that? Number one, it was small enough to be a pillow to go on under the man's head. Small enough to be moved from one place to another so that he could move it to where he laid down. Small enough that he could pick it up and set it on something as a pillar. An ordinary stone. But you know what becomes extraordinary about it this day? He pours oil upon it, showing that it is marked like the Holy Spirit. God's presence is in this place. In that very act, something that we ought to see, it's in the middle of your greatest distress, the most difficult times, during the times in which you don't see God around in this place. You're a stone that God has already poured His oil upon You are a very Bethel house for God because His presence is in you. So whether or not you feel... Have you ever called the place God forsaken? If you are in it, it is not God forsaken. Do you understand that? If you are there, it cannot be God forsaken if God is in you. Romans 8, 9 says if He's not in you, if you don't pass that test, you don't belong to Him. All of you are like this stone set up at Bethel. I want you to understand something else that happens though. When we're in the midst of our struggles, in the long journey, leaving some foundational experience of others, like the vow that His Father made, trying to find God on our own terms or on His own terms in our life, trying to find that place to set up a pillar that said He and I had our monument here. It's easy to find yourself in struggle and distress not understanding God's working around you. That might be the very gateway to heaven, though. I want you to know that in Jesus' ministry, when people thought that they had their formulas figured out, when they thought that they had the box perfectly built for God, He did things like call them twice the sons of hell that their disciples were. He did things like call them brood of vipers. It was those people like the prodigal that were on their long journeys and were distressed and found themselves in a place where they were not aware God even was that found His mercy. This ought to be encouraging to us in our deepest struggles in our most difficult times. Look what happens, though. There ought to be a response when you can look back at some period in your life and go, you know, that was what I thought was the darkest hour, but God was with me and I wasn't aware of it. Listen to what Jacob says. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house. What's he asking for? He's asking for provision and protection. The same thing anybody would want from a Lord, whether that Lord was a man like a king, or that Lord is the Lord. Then the Lord will be my God, and the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. What Jacob has done is he has said, I realize God's working here. And if God will continue to supply me, if He will continue to protect me, I will show Him my trust by treating Him like God and going wherever He says to go, doing whatever He says to do, starting with a tenth of everything that I have. Doesn't that sound like the Christian life to you? It really does to me. I want you to hold your finger here and turn to Genesis 35. There's no real hint of Jacob's distress here because we didn't read the chapter before it. Because we didn't read the chapter before it. But I want you to hear how he recounts this. Uh, Jacob, I'm sorry, verse uh, Genesis 35 starting in verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there. And build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods, they throw him out. The 7th verse says much the same thing. Many times in Jacob's life, he went back to something. He went back to the place where he was in distress, but God came through for him. Let me ask you something. If we spend all of our life avoiding any risk, if we spend all of our life scared, if we spend all of our life never venturing out into the deep waters... How do we ever find that place where we're on our long journey and God came through for us? Where is our monument that says it was on this day that I realized I'm a very house for God's presence and He provides for me? When do we come to the place where we say, I now know that He really is my God and I will do whatever He says and I will start by what I have right now? Sometimes we've tamed Christianity to the point where if we were considering a journey from Beersheba to Haran, we would say, well, maybe maybe we should stop at the Dead Sea. It's closer. It's pretty. You can float in it. It's nice. It's like glycerin. It's good for your back. Maybe we should stop somewhere else. We would never even set out or venture on it, or if we did, it would only be if others went with us. I want to encourage you tonight to consider something. Every great deliverance came from great distress. What do you love about the story where Israel is leaving Egypt? What's your favorite part? Anybody? You can speak up. The Red Sea. Sea. Now, what circumstances do the Red Sea get to? What's happening? Was it fun five minutes before the sea split? It really is not, is it? How about if you had said your favorite part was the deliverance of the firstborn? Right? That would be another great one. How much fun was that five minutes before you realized the angel passed over your house? See, everything that has ever been done for God came out of somebody's great distress. But we spent all of our time trying to avoid any situation where it was even a potential. One of the things that I love to do is get lost in a foreign city. I like to put myself in a position that doesn't even feel dangerous to me. I like to put myself in a position where only God could be at work there because I'm limited. I don't even know where I am and I don't know the language. He was with me not long ago it happened. I didn't even do it on purpose. Did God come through? God absolutely came through, but you know what? It never would have happened if we weren't in that position. I'm not suggesting that you become reckless today. I'm not talking about becoming irresponsible. Don't go and this is not a your story, Brandon. Your story was awesome. But don't go write checks and expect God to cash them. Don't do that. What I am saying is we need to be open, to be willing, to be stressed in every situation to see what God might do. Which one of the apostles saved himself to shrink back from death? How about this one? Turn with me to 2 Samuel. See if you can figure out who we're talking about here. In 2 Samuel 22. I'm going to start in the first verse. The Lord is my rock. It's really the second verse. My fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my Savior. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise. And I am saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me in the torrents of destruction. Overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. What situation is this man in when he cries out to God? He's in desperate distress, peril, isn't he? Who is it? Well, it's David who's writing. But if you listen carefully, you'll hear the Spirit in David crying out about someone else. See what else you hear. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of heaven shook, and they trembled because he was angry. In Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, it speaks of the earth trembling and shaking with someone else. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him and the dark rain clouds of the sky. Matthew 27:45 speaks of darkness on the earth while a son of David was in great distress. Out of the brightness of His presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemies. Bolts of lightning and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed, and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from His nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. How readily do you think David could say that? The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. If David had any righteousness, it was credited to him. But there was a son of David who had absolute righteousness. Have you ever thought, I wouldn't be in this shape, I wouldn't be in this trouble if something weren't wrong, if I didn't zig when I should have zagged? Because surely God wants me blessed. If you go on to read this, you'll find out he couldn't be any more clearly prophesying the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. Was it because Jesus zigged when he should have zagged? We serve a God who answers the call of those who are in distress. Many times we want to sit in a bed of roses with pillow prophecies all around us. Everything is wonderful and you are well accepted and everyone loves you and everybody thinks you're great. And expect that God will move on our behalf. If that were you, Let's, for argument's sake, say that that's Mandy this moment. What need would she have of God? No, we serve a God who is close to the oppressed. We serve a God who is close to the distressed. We serve a God who could have chosen anywhere in Israel for His prophets to come from. But out of all the biblical prophets, there was only one that didn't come from the driest, most desolate region in all of Israel. Of the 350 biblical cities that you can go to in Israel today and see the archaeological evidence of, the vast majority, 300, are in the most arid, difficult to farm sections of Israel. Why would God do something like this? In fact, the people that got the most fertile, beautiful areas were on the other side of a mountain range, and they were Philistines. Why would God do something like this? It's when we're in distress. It's when we're pressed on every side that we have a Savior, a Deliverer. He makes Himself real to us by allowing us to experience hardship so that we can see His hand come through in it. And you know what you learn from it? I am the very house of God. He dwells with me even when I am not aware of it. What an awesome thing to learn. If you really believed it, if you really understood it, then in what scenario could you be intimidated? If you really believed it and understood it, during what scenario would you not be equipped? If you understood and believed that God was with you and like a stone that had oil poured on it to anoint it as different from every other stone, if you really believed that, you could write things like, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or all things, or possible. Or so many other things. But where are those experiences birthed? In distress. Keep your finger here. Well, i got to read you one more line just because you can't read this without reading this line. Starting in uh, verse 38. This is after he's raised. I pursued my enemies and crushed them, just like Genesis 3.15 said he would. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. Go read Philippians 2.10 see how you think that applies. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but He did not answer. Here's my favorite verse in all of the Bible if you ever ask me. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of my people. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I do not know are subject to me. And foreigners come cringing to me. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. It was out of great distress that both David and Jesus called on God and saw great deliverance. Great distress means great deliverance. Turn to 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel look at 22. Right now you're in 2 Samuel 22, but you're going to 1 Samuel 22. When David was becoming king, the first group of people to flock to him it says David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in Distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. You need to make no mistake, saints. Our God is the God of the indebted, the discontented, and the distressed. But He never leaves them that way. From these men come the 30 mighty fighting men and come the armies of all of Israel. But where did they start? in distress, but they found out who their leader was in the midst of that distress. Right now, I am distressed to hear that my brothers and sisters are experiencing hardship in Baton Rouge. But it's in the middle of that hardship that they find out who their leader is. I was distressed to see or hear that Claire is on her way here because there's no electricity there or that my parents were sitting in a house with no electricity and other problems going on there. But it's where we find out who their leader is. Every time God meets you in the center of your distress, you find out who He is to you. Turn with me to the right in your Bible. We're going to go to John. I'm going to try to squeeze in two other Scriptures, and you have to forgive me. Condensing messages is not really my thing. Uh, John 1. Pages are still turning. This popular uh, churchianity that builds gymnasiums, hands out donuts, and will only have an alternative worship service in their gym so as not to offend either silver hair or those with punked out spiked hair. Right? Let's just uh, make everybody happy and take no stand anywhere. Doesn't understand the message that says it's in the midst of your distress you find out who your God is because they will not allow themselves to get there. They risk nothing. They trust for nothing. And so there is no faith there. They possess nothing. I can be poor and possess everything simply by trusting that what God says is true in every scenario. And yet, if you're honest, the greatest battle raging in your minds throughout the day is is God's word, as it applies to each situation throughout your day, is it real enough to live like it's true? Or in this one area, do I cheat him? In this one area, do I say that I trust him but really don't? You'll possess everything you ever needed if you just sell everything for Him. You ready for John? In John 1, starting in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, He said, follow Me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael. Don't you love how the Gospel has always worked like leaven through the whole loaf? If you ask someone, how did you get here in this church? They're going to know someone else who knew someone else Who knew somebody? That's how the gospel has always traveled. So what happens if you will not tell others what God has done for you? The gospel stops. God could have chosen angels to convey His message. God is a mighty God. He could have projected it on the moon. He could have changed the atmosphere so that everywhere you walked there was a 3D image that displayed the gospel. He didn't choose any of those things. He chose you. And you best display the gospel just like a projection screen works the best in the darkest room. You best display the gospel when completely distressed and surrounded by darkness. That's when the image is clearest for everyone else to see. If you're in a bright room full of light all around you, there's nothing that distinguishes you from everything else. Hmm. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. you got to love Nathanael's answer. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? It's a stone. Any old stone. What's different about that stone than any other stone? Can anything good come from there, Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, He said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Hear me, church. There is nothing wrong with a challenging question. There is nothing wrong with a doubt. There is nothing wrong with looking and going, You know, I'm not sure and being honest about it. Jesus knows what Nathanael is. Jesus is very aware of what Nathanael just said. And He pays him a compliment. He said, well, at least the guy doesn't put on a facade. Here's an Israelite who doesn't put on any false pretenses, in whom there is nothing false. God sees those opportunities of distress as a moment in which He can become God to you. Watch how He shows Himself to Nathanael. How do you know me, Nathanael asked? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under a fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God and you are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He just told Nathanael, You're going to see a time in which I'm in distress just like our forefather Jacob. But like our forefather Jacob anointed a rock that looked like any ordinary rock and called it the house of God, our Father has anointed me and I am the house of God and you will see that I am the gateway to heaven. He's always revealed in those moments of distress. I've got one more scripture to show you. Go to Matthew 24. And I'm out of time, so it'll have to be the last one. My wife's in the hospital with her mother, so I got to put kids to bed tonight. So I'm all kind of ten times sensitive to that clock. Are you all ready for Matthew 24? What do you best know Matthew 24 for teaching? The end times, the eschatology, the last days, right? Look at verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days. Why don't you say that with me? Immediately after the distress of those days, immediately pre-trib, the immediate, okay, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky. The sign of the Son of Man. My only point here before we close because I think you already have this is that from the very beginning through the middle and at the very end Jesus always appears in the midst of your greatest distress because this is when He's shown to be your greatest deliverer. We cannot spend our whole lives avoiding distress. In fact, we need to learn to face it with a smile knowing that Jesus is going to be revealed in it. Because it's during those moments you truly become a house for God and the anointed rock that stands above all others. Amen? Amen. Yeah, I want that, don't you? We sing, empty me, empty me. Fill me with more of you, Jesus. Fill me with more of you, Jesus. Everybody who got filled with more of Jesus, every single one, more was required of them. Be careful what you sing. I don't really mean that. I want you to sing it every week. I want to do more for Jesus, don't you? Yes. Above all else, that Holy Spirit is a clothing with power from on high to be witnesses, one brother to another. From Peter to Andrew, Andrew to Philip, Philip to Nathaniel. Where will you be in that chain or will you be in that chain at all this week? Stand to your feet.